Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Lord, as we think about our lives, and we think about what you have done in them, Lord, our heart is full of courage, knowing that we have a Father who loves us, cares for us, protects us, desires to reveal himself to us more and more. And Lord, as we see your work in Scripture, Lord, I'm reminded, Lord, of just what we read the other night with the boys about in Genesis when you were speaking uh, to Abraham. And it says that you spoke to him about what you were going to do. And it says that Abraham drew near, that you allow your children, your called to draw near. You speak to us in things that you already know in your sovereignty, in your omniscience, in your all wisdom, in your perfection. You know everything. And yet, Lord, you speak to us and you tell us things so that we may feel a compulsion and a desire to draw near. Oh, Lord, you are so good that, Lord, that you would cause in us to draw near. Lord, we... In our human relationships, Lord, if somebody doesn't draw near to us, we forget them. We, we, if they don't want me, I want nothing to do with them, Lord. We, we are so fickle, and we desire people's complete attention, or we dis- discard them. But, Lord, we who are constantly double-minded, Lord, we who look to the left and to the right, we who forget, Lord, we who elevate ourselves and put ourselves in authority of our, in our own lives all the time, Lord, you are not like that. You are faithful, Lord, you are kind, you are gracious, you are good, and Lord, you compel us to draw near until that day, Lord, where you draw us completely to you in perfection in that wonderful celestial city, that great place, that great heaven, that great hope we have. Lord, I could sit here and pray and forget the sermon. I forget this whole teaching, Lord, because it's just so wonderful to be in your presence, to be praying with you with people who love you, Lord. I pray that you bless those who came here this morning with ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of God. And Lord, please take this uh, humble mouth and help me to teach this morning, Lord. In all my failings and all my stutterings and misgivings, Lord, I pray that you speak to them because of your love for them, not because of my ability, because I have very little. Thank you for your grace, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 So we are finishing up, hopefully, by God's grace today. <clears throat> and if I have to, to uh, disregard a few points to do that, we might do that. But uh, we're finishing up this section on expository preaching. Thank you very much for uh, letting me teach this. This has been quite a blessing to me. Uh, it has helped me tremendously with my studies already. Uh, I, I need this uh, as, a, as a teacher, as a preacher, I need to stay on top of this. I need to continue to study this, to continue to learn this. So I appreciate your grace and uh, humility in letting me teach you uh, something that I need to learn. But uh, last week and the previous couple of weeks, we spent a good bit of time talking about exegesis, right? Exegesis, if I had to put it in a, in a metaphor, it would be the collection of all the details and parts and pieces required to form an artwork, to form a presentation. Um, I know I gave, made the example with Danielle and Jim and their artworks that they do, uh, and I think that just that metaphor still speaks to me because she creates those uh, um, stained glass 
beautiful artwork pictures. And whenever it's finished, you look at it and you see the light shimmering through it and you see this beautiful picture, but you don't necessarily see the solder and the glass cutting and the shaping and the time and the drawing and the pieces put together. Well, those pieces being put together, that is the exegesis, right? That is the collection of the, of the Greek words and the etymology of the words and the, and the reading cover to cover, the reading from the beginning and the end, the finding uh, bits and pieces of, of the cultural context, what was going on, reading the history books. You're putting all that together. I'm not necessarily going to be presenting that to you. I'm not necessarily going to be teaching that to my wife and children. But these are the kinds of foundational pieces that you put together that help you See a whole picture. But that's not it. That's not done. That's not what we're presenting to people. We're not collecting all these parts and pieces and then sitting a box in front of somebody saying, there, there's all the tools you need. As a preacher, it is still my responsibility to take this and put it into a uniform piece of theology, to put it into a uniform piece of, of principle, something that can be presented uh, to the church members, to the audience, in a way that can be carried in their soul, something that can relate to them, right? Uh, the truth is, and I think you all know this, whenever you're sitting in an audience, and this is, they've done studies on this, you're probably going to retain about 5% of the information. If I spend an hour preaching something, you're going to retain maybe 5% of the information. If you take notes, and you take good notes, you may retain about 10 to 15% of the information. Uh, if you have to write a paper on it, you might retain 40%. If you have to teach it, you tend to retain about 90% of the information. But my point is, if I am presenting to you a, a long list of pieces, um, and that you have to take all those pieces and you have to collect them for yourself and make a meaning out of it, you're not going to get all the pieces. You're not going to remember all of that stuff. That's why our preacher's job is to is to preach in season and out season, to preach the whole counsel of the word of God, to preach the whole gospel and repeat it repetitively over and over and over. Because as an audience, and that's any audience, I don't care if you're preachers in your audience, you're not going to necessarily retain all of that information. So we have to take that exegesis and we have to put it in a format that hopefully will bear some long lasting heart weight with you. The way we do that is the second step. Exegesis is primary. That's giving the biblical text control. That's giving the biblical text priority, what it meant to those people at that time, what was the word of God speaking through the writer at that time, and now we're taking it, we're moving on to the next part, theological reflection. Theological reflection, what is that? Theological reflection is a rigorous and prayerful discipline of taking the time to meditate on my text and how it relates to God's plan of redemption, to the Bible as a whole, especially the saving acts of Jesus. So often when you're preaching, you may be preaching a verse, maybe a series of verses. Well, those verses are connected to other parts, right? Those verses are connected to, to verses before it and in front of it. And those verses all have a meaning within that chapter. And that chapter has a whole meaning within that book. And that author who wrote that book was writing to a specific group of people. And he had a specific intention when he wrote that book. And that book, by God's divine grace and the Holy Spirit's work, was collected and put together with 65 other books, making 66 books of a divine revelation. And that divine revelation is of who? It's of Jesus Christ. It is of the gospel 
the gospel meaning good news. And the good news is the whole of the Bible. So you have to pause. You have to reflect. What does this verse mean, right? What is God saying here in Genesis uh, chapter 2 when he is creating Adam? And it says that he came down and he formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. Okay, well, let's look at that. Let's look at that verse. What do those words mean? What, what is being shown here? Ah, well, we see the humility of man. And we see the glory of man, that he's made from dust, but he's also inbred with the, with the life of God. Okay, well, that's not it. What does that mean in the context of the whole book of Genesis? Well, here's the beginnings. Here's the formations of mankind. Here's the great scope of our problem, of what we were created to be, and then how we fell away. And what does that book of Genesis mean in the whole grand scheme of the Bible? It means that we have a Savior, we have a Messiah, Genesis 3.15 points to him, and then we see in the middle of the Bible, we see Jesus coming, and we see this great work of how he reveals and he answers the prophecy, and then in the whole of the Bible, we see the gospel. See, they all connect, and we have to pause. Let me take these verses. What have I been studying in detail? Let me reflect upon the whole. This is what Jesus did. Jesus did this very thing. Let's look at two people and how they presented the word of God. Let's look at Jesus primarily, and then let's look at Paul. Uh, Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, Jesus anonymously joins his disciples on a seven-mile journey, and he demonstrates how the whole of the Bible concerns him. Let's look at it real quick. Luke chapter 24 Oh, I wrote down the wrong passage. No, I'm looking at John. Here we go. That's what happens when you get technology. Luke, chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. It says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's your primary verse right there. And from the beginning, with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning about himself. Later, he joins the 11, and he does the exact same thing. The principle is that the whole of the Old and New Testament concerned Jesus and particular things about Jesus. And it's what holds the Bible together. It is the cohesive glue that brings everything together. When you're reading the Bible and you're reading through passages and you read a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and you go, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Why am I reading a genealogy? Well, it, it reveals Jesus. It says something about Jesus. It may take you a little thought. It may take you a little meditation. But the whole of the Bible, it reveals something about Jesus. So you, the pastor, the preacher, theologically reflects. What does this section of Scripture and how does it refer to Jesus? And then we look at Paul, looking at it with the instincts of Paul. Paul modeled this conscious and rigorous practice of proving Christ from all Scripture. This is precisely what Paul did. A couple of verses that show it out. And you don't have to look at these, just, just maybe write them down. Acts chapter 17. Verses 2 and 3, it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. Acts 17, 17, he continues, when Paul says, And when they could not find them, 
They dragged Jason, some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Acts 18.14, Paul, it says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Acts 18, verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. So it's rigorous. He's going through Scripture to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and the synagogue, to the people, saying, here is the word of God. And it's about Jesus. Right? He always found a way to come back to Scripture. And he always found a way to come back to Jesus. So what is required for the preacher to harness the skill? Well, number one, he has to be able to use the skill of reasoning, proving, and persuading. Perhaps, church, we, we have some young men coming up in the faith. We have some young men growing in this church. And we start to look out and see who maybe has the giftings. Who could be discipled to be a preacher? It's, a, it's an important thing to do. We'll come to that in this Nine Mark series on discipling up the next generation. Well, these are the kinds of things we're going to be looking at. These are the kind of things we look at for the, for the young men around us when we're looking for the future leaders, future preachers. Can't, do they have skills of reasoning, proving, or persuading? Number two, he employed these tools in diverse contexts, the synagogue and the marketplace. How did he do that? How was Paul able to do this? Well, he understood who man is. Scripture tells us the nature of man, and an understanding that base nature, you can proclaim the gospel effectively. The Word of God tells us primarily who God is, but it also, in telling us who God is, it tells us who we are. It tells us who man is. It tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we see pretty clearly what our problem is, where it came from, and how we got there. And every single man falls into that category. Number three, uh, Paul found ways to preach this same gospel in settings where no biblical knowledge could be assumed. He was able to take their cultural context and find a way, find an avenue in so that he could bring to light the scripture and the word of God. So reading the instincts, what about a modern preacher? Okay, so we see in the in Bible, we see Jesus, uh, we see Paul. What about some of the great preachers of, of our current times? What about Spurgeon? Spurgeon was, what's the, what's the term? He's, oh, yes, he, they, he's called a freak of grace. I like terms like that that just kind of catch you off guard at first. What'd you call me? Oh, oh, well, I guess that's nice. <laughs> the uh, anti-compliment. But Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon did the same thing. He asked, how does the, the text anticipate and relate to the gospel? That was something he was so marvelous at doing. He saw Christ in everything. It didn't matter what he was talking about. And he just did it so beautifully. And if you look at some of the great preachers, some of the ones who were able to speak and impact the soul, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was tremendous at doing this. He was a medical doctor. And he looked at Scripture as a medical doctor. He looked at it as a diagnosis, and then the, the Scripture was also the medicine. But he, in every application, found a way to say, here is the medicine of the Word of God, and the medicine is Jesus Christ. He did it beautifully. He did it beautifully. The medicine of the elder, 
The medicine of the pastor, the shepherd, the preacher from this pulpit, congregation, should always be the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If at the point you see erring on the side of pragmatism, well, this may work, or psychology, things that may have some benefit, they, you may see that, well, that seems to work. That's not the purpose of, of a pulpit. That's not the purpose of preaching. Modern psychology, though it may have seeming uses, when intertwined with Scripture as the medicine, eventually rots. It's something that decays. It is something of the world, and it will poison a church. And that's where you get a lot of modern, uh, modern church philosophy, psychology. I grew, I came up in one. That's where I was saved, and that's the church I was part of. And it was psychology. It was, well, we're all Christians, right? Well, let's sit down together and tell me how you feel. You know, I'm a young man. I got a lot of feelings. I'm 18, 19 years old. I got fear, anger, <laughs> you know, concern. Uh, loneliness, whatever, and you're sitting in a group of men and you're, and you're saying, tell me how you feel, tell me what you think, and then let me apply some worldly logic and psychology because one of the pastors of this church, he was a psychologist. Well, it, it helped. It was nice to be able to talk about things, and there were some things that, that did, you know, some seeming good, but you know what happened to all those men who sat in that room with me who were given psychology? Not a single one of them, not a single one of them are Christians today, not one. Well, save me, but I still keep in touch with them. And they're lost, and they're, they're worldly, and they, were, they are eventually became, what's the word I'm looking for, became, uh, eventually as time went on and they started to see that the same things that were making them feel good a little bit before were no longer working, they became discouraged they became disheartened, and they said, well, that word of God, is, it, did, it didn't do anything for me, so what do I need it for? That's what happened. So psychology doesn't work. Uh, you look at scripture, uh, giving those kinds of practical helps, it, it, it doesn't work long term. The answer is and always will be scripture and the word of God. That was a bit of a divergence, but I think you understand what I'm saying. So there are some challenges here. There are some challenges here when we're looking at a theologically reflected upon a sermon, upon what we're teaching, upon what we're studying, and we cannot lose sight of some things. We can't lose sight as we're reflecting that this is a historical book. The Bible is a historical, factual book. This stuff that we're reading that sounds wild and unimaginable really happened. If we do, we are one generation away from a moral mythology rather than a truth preached. Uh, it was that I was listening to, um, to some of these uh, pastor's talks that Isaac put me onto from podcast, and Jonathan Lehman was talking about how he sat in the back of the, the pulpit, uh, back of the church, listening to Mark Dever uh, preach. And Mark Dever pulled up the Old Testament and read one of the books where it says he, the Israelites were sent in to slaughter this nation and to kill everybody. And Mark, John Lehman was sitting in the back. He said, oh, my, he was cringing because he had a friend with him who wasn't a Christian. And he said, uh, what in the world? Uh, you know, why would he preach this verse? But he was also curious as to his response. And Mark Dever looked up and said, now, as a Christian, you need to understand why this verse is in the Bible. Why is this verse here? Right? 
You need to be able to really be able to preach that, to be able to express to these people that this really happened. This is important to know. It has a reason that it's there. You can't just skip on by it. But we have to keep that in the forefront of mind. When we're talking about Noah building an ark, that really happened. A flood that destroyed the whole earth, that really happened. God coming down and speaking the earth into creation over the course of seven days, that happened. It really did happen. And if you lose sight of that, you start to chip away at the foundations of the belief system. You start to chip away at the foundations of the gospel. And eventually, a few generations, you end up into some sort of modern, uh, even Jehovah's Witness kind of mythology. Well, oh, Genesis is just a metaphor. That's a very common teaching today, guys. I mean, outside of this building, um, I'm, I'm being rudely awakened to the fact that there's a lot more of this going on than I even thought. So these are hard questions. We can't remove history of the Old Testament We can't remove their context when we're preaching. And does what God promised to Israel, does it apply to you today? These questions can't be skated by. When God is making a a promise to them as they're being held into captivity, taken off into captivity, does that apply to you? You gotta be careful with these things. The pastor has to be careful with these things. Is the promise given to Israel at this specific time, was that promise already fulfilled? Joel 2.28 In the last days, your young men shall dream dreams and see visions. Well, that was a prophecy given to Israel, and that prophecy was fulfilled. And then in 1999, a pastor in Virginia Beach starts a a little Bible group, and he calls it Joel 2.28 because he wants to take that verse and apply it to young men today. And I'm walking around going, yeah, I'm waiting to see these visions and, you know, dream these dreams. Well, had nothing to do with us today. And it was completely taught incorrectly. So... These are hard questions. Theological reflection has to deal with some of these hard questions. Am I proving this correctly? And where do we begin as pastors? Where do we begin as preachers? Where do you begin as teachers of your home with this? We begin with prayer. Prayer. Paul Washer said something at the G3 conference that profounded me impactfully. He said, he said, we need men of God who are willing to grind their teeth in the word of God, but are as equally willing to spend as much, if not more time, on their knees in prayer. Which if you've ever listened to Paul Washer, as some of us know, uh, <laughs> that's how you feel most of a sermon. There's all oh. um, impacted me. I said, oh, Lord, help me. I have been spending so much time intellectually delving into Scripture, trying to grasp Scripture, and so little time in prayer. We can't do this. Pastors can't do this. Preachers can't do this without the help of the Holy Spirit. Basic. Basic. Um, There's an intimate connection between the revelation of the identity of Christ Seeing, his, seeing Christ as the fulfillment of Scripture and prayer. Luke and his gospel made this, this correlation often. Jesus was revealed to Peter as the Christ after a time of prayer. The transfiguration, when did that happen? During prayer, right? Anna and Simeon were revealed as pious people of prayer immediately preceding God's revealing of Jesus to them. Luke, Luke was clear. God reveals Jesus to people as a consequence of prayer. Reveals himself to you in prayer. As a preacher, preaching, 
we want, or we feel this compulsion that, Lord, please move on my people. Please move on these sheep, on your people. And we, we see that compulsion realized, and we see the fruit of it through prayer. So what is the use, usefulness of biblical theology? Uh, biblical theology, what is that? Let's define that. Biblical theology asks us to take a step back and look at the big picture of what God has said and done and see how it relates to the epicenter of his revelation, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This prevents merely intellectual or moralistic preaching. It helps to put you at the heart of the Christian gospel, and it keeps the main thing the main thing. Well, what's the main thing? How do we keep the main thing the main thing? Well, the main thing is the gospel. The main thing is Jesus. The main thing is his salvation work. That's what we're preaching for, right? That's what we're preaching for is to, to, to seek the lost, to go out and, and to gather in the sheep of God that he's called and elected, and then to take those sheep and to bring them closer and closer in sanctification to look like their father. The main thing is Jesus. So how does biblical theology work? How do we use it rightly in preparation and preaching? Well, number one, you have to get a biblical theology. You have to have one. You need to know one. And how do you get that? Well, you read the Bible front to back. You read it consistently. Having a good and deep internal knowledge of the whole Bible will help you make connections between the different chapters. Right? If you've never taken the time to delve into First and Second Chronicles because you don't, you don't like all the begats and the, and the genealogies and things like that, well, you're never going to be able to make a connection of the gospel to it. Uh, use a good uh, secondary source. Use a good commentary. Take some wise men who have been proven in the faith. Take the Puritans. Take their, their works and their efforts. And what, you know, I've had this difficulty in, in the past. It's like, well, why in the world do I need to spend time studying the biographies of great men of God? You know, that just seemed to me humanistic for a long time. Why do I need to go and read the biography of David Brainerd or the biography of Puritan such and such or these Puritan works? Well, they are examples of God's redeeming work shining brightly through people. We see fruit of God's work through people. We see how God operates. They're encouraging. They're enlightening. You know, so use some good secondary sources. Use a good commentary. Use a good systematic theology. Uh, ask yourself theological questions. How does the gospel affect my understanding of the text? How does the text reflect upon or anticipate the gospel? Right? Does, does Genesis chapter 16, when Abraham is talking to, to the theophany revelation of the Lord, does that reflect the gospel coming? How does it happen? Where do we see elements of it? When we see uh, the covenant made for the first time between God and Abraham, is that a picture of the gospel? You know, what is it? It, it adds richness and depth to it when you have a biblical theology that spans the whole scriptures. Uh, follow the New Testament lead. The New Testament itself shows biblical theology, theological methods by its writers. Look at Paul's speech to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. What, is, what does Paul do? Do y'all remember this? When he says, he says uh, men of Athens, I perceive that you are religious people. And he, he talks about all of their different deities and gods. And he says, and there I found this one statue to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about the unknown God. Marvelous. Right? What an, what an intro. What a, what a genius kind of uh, 
introduction into the gospel. And I was encouraged because even, even the response was like, who is this babbler? I'm like, man, if you can't get it from Paul, I don't know if you're going to get it from me. <laughs> you know, so it was a little encouraging in the sense that I have to realize that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that does it. But uh, what does Paul do? He turns cultural objects into conversations about God. Paul begins at the beginning of creation, and Paul reveals humanity's universal problem. He gives, he gives large, sweeping uh, uh, paintbrush strokes. God created man. God created man in, in his image to fellowship with him, and we fell and we sinned through Adam. Now, did he go through a great deal of time saying, look, y'all don't know about Adam. He's, it's Jewish people. We know about it. Let me explain to you about Adam. No, what did he do? He told the truth, and he told the truth of Scripture, and he allowed the Holy Spirit to take the truth of Scripture and implant it into hearts. And that's what happens. Even if it's an unchristian person who has never heard the Word of God, you speak Scripture to them, and it will stick in their soul. And they will be like, Where, why in the world does that just bother me? <laughs> right? That's what we do. We don't have to explain every little nuance. We speak Scripture, and we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. I should probably not allow. We, we watch as the Holy Spirit does his work. I don't allow the Holy Spirit to do anything. He does what he wants. So Paul goes on to emphasize God's eternality and his desire for relationship. And Paul shows uh, the culpability of man and calls them to repentance. And Paul takes his uh, eight verses to cover Genesis to Revelation. And what did he do? He gave a whole biblical theology. You want to hear a phenomenal sermon where this was actually put into practice? G3, this year, Tim Chalice. I think it was the first or it was the second sermon of the whole thing. He did this, and he took, what was it, Isaac? He took um, the angels, the cherubim, the, cher the cherubim, oh my goodness. And he took and he went through all of Scripture and found the cherubim, and he painted a biblical theology of the gospel. Oh, it was phenomenal. It's one of the most beautiful sermons I've ever heard. But that's what Paul did, making good uh, gospel connections, looking for prophetic fulfillments, looking for the historical trajectory, looking for themes, looking for analogies. This is what the preacher does. This is what the pastor does. They take all of that information of exegesis and they say, okay, now let me put them into formats. So what are you looking for as a congregation? You're saying, well, I, Tim, do I need to do all this? No, they're good things to do. There are blessings for you to do as you're studying, but these are things you should be paying attention to in the preacher. Here, yes, but what about what you're listening to online, on the internet? Who are the pastors, who are the preachers you're listening to on the internet? Are you listening to, uh, are you, maybe you're listening to Stephen Furtick or Joel Osteen. That's a lot of head shaking here. All the good theologians come into Bible study, I know. <laughs> but, you know, maybe somebody else is. Uh, presenting to them proper exposition, saying, does this pastor follow proper exposition? Is he putting together the true meaning of the text? Is he wrapping it into the theme of the gospel? Is he presenting it as the gospel? Is he making the text and the people who are hearing the original text, are they the primary reasoning for his uh, meanings? Things to be looking for. So, <clears throat> implications for today. Now we get to the final part. We have taken the exegesis, and we have put together all the components. We've got a, we've got a nice selection of, uh, of, of details. We've reflected on it. How do all these details fit? 
You know what I mean? Because you may have put together, I look through my notes, and I'll have little thoughts jotted down, written down, little words, and I'll look at it all, and I'll start to reflect upon it, and I'll say, ah, that, I don't need that. That doesn't really fit here. That was just a, an aberrant thought. It happens. Um, puts it all together as you theologically reflect into a cohesive unit. And then we have to say, now, I have here a theologically reflected meaning of the text. Now, it's my job, it's the pastor's job to take it and present it. To give it uh, to those who need to hear it, who need to eat it. Stephen Lawson, he said, uh, a lecture can be given at any time, but a sermon must be given now. I love it. What's that? Martin Lloyd-Jones called it logic on fire, right? You sit there, and, you, and uh, you don't collect all of the ingredients of a food and then just put it on a table and mix it together and say, there you go. What do you do? You cook it up. You heat it up. And it's best to eat that food on fire. It's best to, no. If you eat my food, it's on fire. If you eat, uh, <clears throat> if you eat my wife's food, it's nice and hot at, at the proper temperature. But it's, you want to eat it when it's, when it's warm, when it's, when it's satisfying, when it's filling, when it means something to you, right? We take all that and we put it together into a cohesive unit and we present it to the people. So here is when we contextualize. Finally, it's third in line. It's not first. It's not uh, where we are like the drunk man using the Bible uh, as, as, a, as a pole to lean on, right, rather than light. You remember that analogy? I like that analogy. But uh, now we are saying, okay, well, here at the end, now we've got everything properly built up correctly. We have it all reflected upon what the meaning of the text is in the whole Bible. Now we say, okay, well, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to the people? What does it mean to me? How does it mean in my current context, Right? Uh, contextualization should inform how we preach God's word today along three lines. Well, one, what is the makeup of your audience? The arrangement of your material. And three, the application of your message. Uh, if you listen to some old Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons, they're phenomenal sermons, but I read through his biography, and they talked about uh, some of the, the people who were in his under his sermons, talked about just the presence and the aroma of the Holy Spirit there and just how it was moving on them and how it was this tangible thing. Well, I'm seeing a sermon 50, 60 years later on YouTube. I'm not necessarily getting that same kind of interaction. I'm not feeling the same thing they felt. Why? Because Martin Lloyd-Jones was speaking to his people. He wasn't speaking to me. He didn't know me. He didn't walk with me. There was something personal about shepherding, Right? This is why God has dictated that we are to be a local church. We're not, to be, we're not to operate as a universal church where we all log in and watch the next best and greatest preacher. We're supposed to be here because this shepherd walks with you, knows your pains, knows your griefs, knows your hearts, knows what you need. And when he is taking this together, he is putting it in the context of this is what my people will understand. Conrad Mbewe, they call him the, the African Spurgeon. But, you know, I'm not watching his sermons where he's speaking in Afrikaans. You know, I, it's, it's, he's presenting to those people in a language that means something to them. Here, under this, in this church, the pre preacher is speaking to you in a way that will hopefully, by God's grace, speak into your life personally. So we are trying to synthesize, to put together these three distinct elements of exegesis, 
theological reflection and context into a new coherent whole for the audience. Uh, and when we're looking at the audience, people can make, uh, preachers can make two mistakes, and we have to be careful of this. If our preaching always opposes culture, our message will be rejected before we have the opportunity to present God. It can't always be, uh, it can't be always constantly, just culture is terrible and awful, and you have to have this haircut and these kinds of pants, you know, and nothing cultural whatsoever. We can't always be antagonistic against things that maybe are not um, uh, moral things. Number two, oppositely, if we accommodate the message to the world, we forfeit the ground of truth. I'll say it again. We cannot accommodate the message to the world and make everything fit to the world because then we forfeit the truth. How, how do you see that today? Well, uh, churches across the nation are saying, well, love is love, and it doesn't matter if it's a, a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Let's just look at the gospel. They're forfeiting the truth to the context of our world. Never lose sight of this. Disciplines exist to serve people. Disciplines exist to serve people. The people are the point of the shepherd. The people are the point of the shepherd. A shepherd's not out uh, cultivating the lawn. He's out managing the sheep. The people are the point. And if you do not possess a heart for the people of the world, you should not be allowed to preach. Do those that you are under in preaching, do they love the people? Do they care for the people? Or are they merely um, professors in a college type of attitude? You must have a godly passion for the people. Learn to know and love the audience God has given you. And what is the primary audience of the church? What, is the, what, are the, what are the people that the preacher is speaking to? Well, the first audience is the Christian, the sheep of God. That is, my, that is my first job is to feed them, to give them the food they need. The word of God sustains his church. It sustains his people to feed the people. And the young pastor may err in this. He may stand up at the pulpit. I know that I have with this constant desire to let me go out here and call, to, call out the bad ones. Let me go out here and give the gospel and forget to feed the sheep. Can't do that. I know in a young, passionate heart, that's easy to do. Uh, the preacher must be keenly aware of his needs, uh, of his need for an audience with God through prayer. God alone does this work before us. Preachers must be desperate for the power of the Holy Spirit to attend our preaching. So we pray. The second audience is the audience of the city, the people who are coming in from around the community, those who don't know the Lord, those who are here searching. We should preach as though we intended to be understood by the people from the four corners of the earth. In today's world, that's very possible. I think you guys saw us on the internet, didn't you? I mean, who knows who sees you know, what we're streaming out there on the internet? And we should be preaching in a manner that makes sense to them. I remember um, one of the most profound examples I saw of it was Janita. Janita was here. She was, she was from India. Uh, and she spoke very little English, and I saw a video of it. And they, she was, um, was a Hindu? Hindu, right? Hindu? I'm getting no head nods from you. All right, we'll come back later. <laughs> she was Hindu, I believe. And she was having a, she was having a baby, and she was having a, a religious ritual at her house. And my wife and Randy Cruz went to go. Uh, she asked them to come with her because she had no one here. And Randy, who was, uh, who, uh, 
was very well versed in, in the culture, had looked it up, understood. Well, Randy comes in and she brings a plate with two nails on it. Um, there was, a, I think there was a piece of bread and there was just little different items on it. And she walked in with these things and the, the Indian couple that was there along with Gina said, oh, you brought little um, offerings to your God. And she said, yes. And they said, oh, well, you understand our culture, right? So they go through the whole ritual. And afterwards, I saw Randy uh, give a presentation that my wife was videotaping of the gospel through these little things. And she was, it made sense to her. She's like, oh, I understand these. I understand your symbols. Yes, I understand. And she was able to accurately convey the gospel to her through symbols because that was the way that she was used to learning from her culture and her religion. And it, was a, it made sense, Right? And we have to be able to present the gospel this way to whoever comes into the congregation with the Holy Spirit's help, right? So we need prayer. We need the Holy Spirit. I have a lot of uh, other things I could talk about here uh, just as far as application about using context in the right method. But I think you understand what I'm saying. And I will sum it up with a couple of uh, quotes here. Acquire all the ingredients do the painstaking work, then put the cookies on the lowest level shelf so everybody can reach them. It's Alan Cantrell. He summed up what I was saying in a text one day, and I said, ah, it's perfect. That's preaching. That's preaching. We're going we're gonna to mount that. I'm going to hang it in my, my house. Are you writing down your own quote? Yeah. Okay, he's writing his own quote down. That's a note taker right there. <laughs> You'll forget it. <laughs> That's what, that's what it is. That's, that's, it's, it's, this is preaching. Acquire all the ingredients. Do the painstaking work. Crack a few eggs. Mix it all together. Right? Then take the finished cookies, hot, and put them on the lowest level shelf so that everybody can reach them. That's the pastor's work. One of the things I like to do is I like to go ask my sons after I preach or something like that. I'm like, tell me what I preached about. And if they look at me like, I have no idea. I have no idea what you even said, man. I know I missed it. I have to be able to give the wonders and the riches of the word of God, but I have to be able to give it in a way that everybody can grasp it. This is not a gospel for the most intellectual. This is not a gospel for the most learned and able this is a gospel for the weak and the poor and those who are lowly and those that the world despises, right? The broken, the uneducated. Paul Washer said one time, he said, they asked him, he said, who do you think was the greatest preacher ever? And he said, we've probably never heard him. He said, he's probably some tribal man out in the middle of the woods preaching the beauties of the word of God that nobody would ever see or hear. And he gave an example of it. He, saw, he knew a missionary, uh, as a missionary, he saw a man who was led to the Lord, uneducated, maybe, couldn't even, I, th I don't think he could read. And he said, uh, they led him to the Lord, and he was learning to read when he left. And he said he came back years later, and he said he heard the most beautiful preaching, it was in Spanish, um, that he had ever heard. And he said, and there he walks in, he sees the man that was converted, that had learned to read, right? It's a bit, this is the gospel. This is what it does. It takes these broken vessels. It takes these uh, broken people, 
And all of a sudden, these crumbling pots of clay, like Romans 9 talks about, just, you know, we've got these potholes in us, and it, we're filled all of a sudden, and our, our sustenance and our, our sustaining power comes from the internal means of the Holy Spirit. We are the only things that have structure because of what's in us, right? All these other vessels, you know, the vessel contains what's in it, but for us, we are contained by what's inside of us. Otherwise, we would crumble. That's the gospel, and it's for these people, and we have to be able to give it to these people, we have to be able to present it in a way that means something to the, to the youngest and the lowliest of all of us. But that does not mean that we diminish it. That does not mean that we reduce the awe of God. It means we, re- we present the whole counsel of it. Amen? Well, that's what we're trying to do. That's what expository preaching is meant to do. It's, expository preaching is saying, give me every ounce of juice Give me every ounce of fluid from this wonderful fruit that is the word of God, right? I just want to get all of it. I want to get as much of it as I can. And I want to be able to hold on to it. Okay. My, my heart and my emotions will have me sit there saying these little five-word phrases for the rest of the day. But um, I think you understand what I'm trying to say. But um, let's pray. And pray for preaching here. Pray for me. I, I, I need to do a better job of this. I do. I do need to do a better job of this. I uh, Pray for Isaac. Pray for Alan. Pray for them when they're preaching. Um, pray that we can be a healthy church founded upon exposition of the word of God. Pray that we do this uh, well for the sake of his name. Amen? Amen. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you help, that you assist, that you give us what we need that, Lord, we are never alone in this. But, Lord, help us to have a right motive, like you said in Matthew 5, that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to have right motives. And then move us in the right path, Lord, with these right motives. Uh, Lord, aside from our failings, use us in spite of our lack. And, Lord, help us to preach the word of God in season and out. And, Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you Move on Alan today as he's preaching the word of God. I pray that you give him the words. I pray that you fill his, his mouth and his soul with the, with the wonder and awe of God. I pray that we have a, a, a church of people that pray with him, that pray for him, that pray together like Spurgeon's people did. The boiler room of that great church was 700 people praying for the sermon, praying for the word of God, praying for their pastor, Lord. Lord, that is what moves uh, this place. That's what moves our hearts, Lord, is a praying people and rightly preached word of God. So, Lord, I pray you be with Alan as he preaches today. Lord, I pray you give him the the heart and the sight and the words to speak the truth. Lord, I pray you be with him, as I know you will. And thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for this lesson on exposition. exposition. Thank you for the the wonder it has been to me. And I pray you bless these people for coming and, and hearing it, Lord. I pray you bless our church. In your name I pray, amen.